You rely on this podcast to stay informed and connected with your local community, and we rely on you. Without listener support, this show simply wouldn't exist. Be a part of the team that makes this show possible by donating to our home, KUOW. It only takes a minute. Donate at KUOW.org or follow the link in the show notes. And thank you. Hi, this is Bill Radke, host of KUOW's Week in Review. I'm back with another episode of Words in Review. You know, each week I choose a word or a phrase that we're hearing a lot lately. It's in the news. It's in the zeitgeist. And I ask what those words say about us. There are rumors that next month's Cannes Film Festival will feature a new film by writer-director Woody Allen. Woody Allen is married to his ex-wife's daughter, and his adoptive daughter accuses him of sexually abusing her, which he denies. Meanwhile, a Seattle author has just written a book about what it's like to be a fan whose favorite artist is accused of monstrous behavior. Woody Allen appears in the book. So does Roman Polanski, the director, Michael Jackson, Picasso, Hemingway, and many more. The book is called Monsters, A Fan's Dilemma. Its author, Claire Dieterer, wants you to pay attention to the words we choose. Words like monster. I want to be clear that when I use the word monster, I'm talking about someone who's done something or said something that disrupts the audience's experience of their work. So when we go to watch a Woody Allen film, we can't sort of forget what we know about Woody Allen. Or when we listen to R. Kelly, we can't sort of forget about the story around R. Kelly. So the people I thought about in the book were people whose biographies invaded my experience as an audience member of their work. And by the way, you like this word. I have a complicated relationship with this word. So I really like the strength of it. I like that it's an old word. I like that it has all these like sort of furry and growly associations. I like that it, it it's a very lively, almost childish word in a way. But it became more problematic for me as I wrote because of the way it othered the person. I'm not a monster. That person is a monster, right? So it's a way of defining us and them. Because a monster is literally not human. That's pretty much what a monster is. Exactly. So while I sort of liked the kind of drama of the word, I was also troubled by the way that it made what is not okay in human behavior inhuman. We all have parts of ourselves that are non-ideal and potentially monstrous. And no, she's not saying that all of us are equally villainous and terrible. Her point is about how we disassociate ourselves from someone to the point of creating a different species, the monster. Dieterer also says one reason we suffer so much when our favorite artist turns out to be monstrous has to do with a different word. That word is obsession. We use this language of obsession as a kind of, well, a kind of swagger, yes. right? Like we use it to say, I am not just a fan. I'm a super fan. I am this thing. This thing is me. We have become one. Mm. And I'm obsessed. I'm a stan. I'm right. a total nerd. I'm hardcore. And there's a lot of joy in that. I'm not saying we shouldn't have fandoms and fan relationships. I think there's incredible uh, joy and belonging to be gotten from these communities. Uh, but I think that sometimes the idea of obsession is expressing this kind of 
desire to collapse with the thing that we're a fan of, you know, that we are one and the same and we are defined by our love of that thing. So you're obsessed with a musician, a writer, a painter, a performer. You feel connected to them and it turns out they're a monster. That's a dilemma. You might resolve that dilemma with the help of another word. Can we talk about a word that you really pick up on, the word genius? Mm-hmm. What does genius mean to you, and how does it relate to monster and obsession? I, I talk about the idea of the genius being less of a kind of person than a status of a person. And what I write about and what I thought about a lot was the idea of the genius as the person who gets to do whatever he wants. Mm-hmm. So genius. He. Yeah. Usually. Emphasis on he. Emphasis, you know, usually a white man, um, which is a, you know, bludgeoning kind of term, but is germane in this particular case. There's this kind of idea, this, this idea that the artist who is a genius is someone who's channeling something bigger than himself. Like this is often something that's talked about with Picasso that he has this kind of divine inspiration, that there's a muse, that there's something flowing through him that helps create this very, you know, fluid, exciting work. And with that kind of flow of divine inspiration, license sort of comes alongside that. Because if it's, if you have this external force sort of feeding you and making you make this incredible work that people love and also is making a lot of money, you know, that's like an impulsive energy, then your other impulses start to become uh, protected Mm -hmm. because you don't want to turn off whatever it is that's flowing through this guy. And if it's his freedom means like making, you know, making Guernica, but also putting out a cigarette on someone's cheek. You know, there's sort of this way in which it's all this very male energy that is for good or ill. And it's it's not for us to, as you say, shut it off. Right. We, and we, we have can't, to take all of it. Yes. It's sort of, yeah, it's like a fire hose, right? We can't shut it off. It's this energy that they're tapping into, and we so value and so want the work they make that we take all the other bad behavior with it. And and we're thrilled by it, you know, in a lot of ways. Um, there's a lot of very hard to talk about um, fascination with crappy stuff that geniuses do, you know, the, the sort of bad boy thing. Um, that's thrilling to observe because life is very boring. So here's someone who's bringing you a plot, right, <laughs> and incredible work. So there's a way that becomes fetishized. And that image of this this free man with license to do whatever he wants, we see it as one of the kind of dominant expressions of 20th century um, art. You know, we see it with Picasso. We see it with Hemingway. And then it sort of reaches its apotheosis in in the culture of rock in the 60s and 70s, where that that license and that freedom, that total freedom to do whatever you want, is acted out over and over. And hilariously, paradoxically, when it's acted out by the male rock gods, this freedom starts to <laughs> become more and more limited because they all do the same shit over and over and over. <laughs> do you think any of that exists because we have a word 
called Genius, which, kind of like Monster, creates this other category. How important do you think the word... That's My, my series is about words. Right. How much do you think the word genius matters? Yeah, I think genius is a hall pass, right? I think that word's so important because once you put it on someone then that excuses everything they do, and it also excuses me for still loving them. Mm. So when I first, you know, this whole book sort of started because I had written um, a lot about Roman Polanski in my last book, Love and Trouble, and I researched his crime, I researched his rape, so I sort of knew everything there was to know about him. And when I was done, I found I was still watching the films, I'm very well informed about this person, and I still just sat down and watched Chinatown, right? Mm. And that's how I came to write this book was I was I've been thinking about this for, you know, many years. The very first thing I did when I started thinking about this problem, the first thought I had was, well, he's a genius, so he can do that. Um, and that was my go-to response was to employ that word to give him a pass for his behavior, and then that gives me a pass for consuming the work. Yeah, a pass because not only is the genius tapping into the the divine, but they're they're out of control too. Part of your uh, description of a genius is someone who's in service of the divine. Yeah, I think that for me, kind of lost, yeah, out of control. Right, exactly. And um, I for me, one of the really important images of twentieth century genius uh, has to do with Jackson Pollock and kind of the fractaling, flinging paint. I think there's something about that image that makes a metaphor for the all of the kind of free um, Dionysian, I never know how to say that word, mm-hmm. uh, kind of male, uncontrolled. I think there's something in that image that it's sort of all there, that he's doing this thing that's out of control, and yet somehow at the same time, he's the master of it. I mean, that's the kind of tension and it's a very male tension. So on the one hand, he's out of control because he's channeling whatever it is that's making him fling pain around. But then he is also the master, the absolute master. He's managing the rhythms of the paint. He's managing the workers on the film set. If he's Kanye, he's managing the various people who are coming through the studio to make the album. Um, so it's this he's both a servant and a master. And you have to have both or you don't get to be a genius. <laughs> <laughs> well, to get back to the word in your title, I think you're right when you say that the word monster distances us from a, a discomfort, which is why I really appreciated your suggestion that we look for ourselves in the monster and the monster in ourselves. The big watershed moment in writing the book came when I decided to write about my own experience of becoming sober. You cannot become a sober person without acknowledging that something's not right with how you're living. You're making a big change and you're you're acknowledging that there's something in you that's not that that is out of control. And so becoming a sober person and being exposed to recovery culture and really helped me understand and think about this idea that the monster is us. If we go around monstering other people, ultimately the finger's going to point right back at us. And pretending that we're better than or different than is not going to help you stay sober um, and therefore, you know, live.
Seattle writer Claire Dieterer's book Monsters, A Fan's Dilemma, comes out April 25th. I wanted you to hear Claire for two reasons. Number one, we've all been disappointed in someone and in ourselves, and we really long to connect ourselves to something that is transcendent, like art. And number two, Claire captures the way I feel about words. You know, I don't do this words in review series just to be a grammar stickler. I don't really care about irregardless or whom versus who. I know some of you do care about that. I care about how we use words because, well, here, I'll let a wordsmith say it. Words can be a tool to reveal truly lived and truly felt experience, and those words can be the tool of obscuring that experience. So really holding up words that are obscuring the truth and looking at them and trying to figure out what's actually going on is the crux of everything I do. And finding a way to at the same time use words to seek clarity and truth. So it's a it's the word is a double-edged sword. It's doing both things. Is there a word or a phrase that you think reveals or obscures something about us or just words that drive you crazy? That can be fun too. Email me about it at bradke, B-R-A-D-K-E, at K-U-O-W dot org. Maybe I'll make an episode about it. Until then, I'll be with you again Friday with Week in Review, and I'll talk to you next week here on Words in Review.